Hello, hello, hello. This is Dwayne Utley. This is the Common Sense Party Podcast. Bringing more common sense to our everyday listener. Uh, right now, it is Super Bowl Sunday. Yes, Super Bowl Sunday. Who you got in the big game today? I got um, I got the Chiefs. All right. Special shout out to our listeners in Boardman, Oregon. Right next to that military bomb site. We really appreciate y'all listening in Charlotte and Snellville. Also in Bashrani. We do appreciate y'all downloading and listening to our podcast every day. So this week we're starting. Why are Republicans going after teachers? Is it a part of fascism? Uh, why are Republicans targeting books that that promote that's the word I'm for promote empathy and unity uh, this is Super Bowl Sunday let's get it started Sense Party Podcast. I'm your host, Dwayne Otley, trying to bring, make common sense out of this crazy world. <clears throat> you can check us out every week, rate us, review us, give us five stars, give us four stars, give us feedback. We're available on Amazon, Spotify, uh, Samsung Podcast, Pandora, Google Podcast, and TuneIn. Yes, and we're still working on Apple. You can reach us at the common sense party pod at gmail.com we're also available on instagram and tiktok you can support via cash app or zell the information is located on our website we are gonna give a shout out to a couple more listeners uh in kansas san francisco ashburn virginia brussels belgium ethiopia thank you for downloading and listening i hope you enjoy the podcast okay we're gonna start with President Biden's, uh, excuse me, that's a fine, uh, State of the Union address, and how he owned uh, the crazy Republicans. Yes, they are crazy Republicans, and let's check this out. Nearly 25% of the entire national debt that took over 200 years to accumulate 
was added by just one administration alone, the last one. They're the facts. Check it out. Check it out. How did Congress respond to that debt? They did the right thing. They lifted the debt ceiling three times without preconditions or crisis. They paid American bills to prevent an economic disaster in the country. So tonight I'm asking the Congress to follow suit. Let's commit here tonight to the full faith and credit of the United States of America will never, ever be questioned. So my, many of, some of my Republican friends want to take the economy hostage. I get it, unless I agree to their economic plans. All of you at home should know what those plans are. Instead of making the wealthy pay their fair share, some Republicans, some Republicans want Medicare and Social Security to sunset. I'm not saying it's a majority. Let me give you, anybody who doubts it, contact my office. I'll give you a copy. I'll give you a copy of the proposal. That means Congress doesn't vote. Well, I'm glad to see you. No, I tell you, I, I enjoy conversion. You know, it means if, if Congress doesn't keep the programs the way they are, they go away. Other Republicans say, I'm not saying it's a majority of you. I don't even think it's even a significant. But it's being proposed by individuals. I'm not politely not naming them, but it's being proposed by some of you. Look, folks. The idea is that we're not going to be we're, we're not going to be moved into being threatened to default on the debt if we don't respond, folks. So, folks, as we all apparently agree. Social Security and Medicare is off the, off the books now, right? They're not going to All right. We've got unanimity. Social Security and Medicare are a lifeline for millions of seniors. Americans have to pay into them from the very first paycheck they started. So tonight, let's all agree, and we apparently are, let's stand up for seniors. Stand up and show them We will not cut Social Security We will not cut Medicare Those benefits belong to the American people They earned it And if anyone tries to cut Social Security Which apparently no one's going to do And if anyone tries to cut Medicare I'll stop them I'll veto it I'm not going to allow them to take away, be taken away. Not today, not tomorrow, not ever. But apparently it's not going to be a problem. Next month, when I offer my fiscal plan, I ask my Republican friends to lay down their plan as well. I really mean it. Let's sit down together and discuss our mutual plans together. Let's do that. Ladies and gentlemen, <clears throat> excuse me, that's a fine. Um, an 80-year-old man who stammers and stutters got the best of the supposedly 
Republican Party because that has been their mantra for about 40 to 50 years that they're going to cut Social Security. That man got them to clap and stand up and say that they won't cut Social Security or Medicare. But I don't understand, but hey, they don't want him to run for re-election. They're not touting his victories. Created 12 million jobs, but they don't want him to run again. I guess so. Alright. And he ran circles around them. Baited them and goaded them. So, hey. At least he's a savvy politician. Like I said, I'm an independent. And when the Democrats in the office, I always make money. So, let's get a little bow from the fifth to comment on what just happened. Well, howdy there, Internet people. It's Bo again. So today we are going to talk about the State of the Union. We're going to talk about the address. What happened will hit the highlights and provide a general overview. Uh, There are some entertaining moments in it, that's for sure. Okay, so first, it's a normal State of the Union address. Okay, It, It goes over a lot of the accomplishments of the Biden administration. That's something that I constantly talk about on this channel, where I'm like, they don't do a good job of talking about what they do. So, if you're interested, maybe watch it, and you'll pick up some of what the Democratic Party has been able to accomplish. Another thing that I talk about is that Biden is very status quo, and he is. But one thing that I always you know, have to give him is that he does insert very progressive ideas at times in ways that matter because it helps carry that message forward especially when it's done with a good rhetorical device and and it's it's embedded in other language there was a really good example of this in the speech when he is talking about veteran homelessness he doesn't say that no veteran should be homeless He says no person should be homeless, especially our veterans. This is one of those things that carries that idea forward. It may not sound like a huge difference, but believe me, one is way closer to housing as a human right than the other. One is conditional on service. One is you're here. Therefore, you you should have a place to be. Um, there was uh, a very unique moment that I am certain is going to be memed over and over and over again. And that's, uh, name me one. (laughs) Biden uh, got a little excited at one point, and he honestly sounded like a Southern preacher. Um, He was talking about how democracies are are kind of rising and authoritarian governments are in decline. This was in context of China and of course the framing, which we've talked about on the channel, that the new Cold War is going to be democracy versus authoritarianism. That's going to be the framing of it. And he's talking about that. And he says to uh, name a world leader, that would want to change places 
with China's leader, kind of suggesting that China's really in check and has a lot of walls being thrown up. And that's true, it is. Uh, we've covered a lot of the the military and foreign policy stuff on the channel over the last week. But there's also a lot of economic stuff going on as well. And he got excited when he said that. And he repeated, name me one, name me one. And I don't know if it's just because it's the way that I talk, um, but I couldn't help that he was trying to say two things at one time. One being that China is kind of uh, being isolated and that, you know, the democracy side of the Cold War um, is winning. But I think the other one was that he really wanted people to envision a leader who would uh, trade places with him, who would trade places with the leader of China. I think that's why he said it the way he did and repeated it the way he did. Go ahead, try to picture one. Who do you come up with? I can only come up with one. The guy who fawned all over him called him king. But but he said that he, he, he is not king. And I said, you're president for life. That makes you king. And he really liked that. Trump. I think that was a shot at Trump. Um... I don't know that. I mean, it it could just be me seeing the way that I talk in, in in his speech. I don't know that that's what he was doing, but if he was trying to allude to Trump, it certainly worked on me. Um, and then there was the the great scene where he played the entire Republican Party like a fiddle. Um, he was talking about the the debt ceiling, the manufactured crisis that the Republicans have created. And he's like, you know, and they don't want for corporations to pay their fair share. They'd rather, and he says, some Republicans would rather sunset Medicaid and uh, Social Security, or Medicare and Social Security. And the Republican Party started booing and yelling and screaming liar. It's fantastic. Um, so what he said was factual. Republicans certainly have proposed that. Some have put pen to paper and turned it into a, a plan or a proposal. That absolutely occurred. The question you have to ask yourself is, why didn't the Republican Party respond the way they did in the State of the Union when one of their own party members proposed it? They didn't have a problem with it being proposed. They had a problem with Biden telling you that they had proposed it. That was the real issue. And they did. They, they one person, and you could probably guess who, uh, screamed out liar, because you know, they're super classy. Um, and he was telling the truth. And, and he followed, up, followed it up with, like, you know, if you have questions, I can send you the proposal. Reach out to my office. And uh, they all had these looks on their face, just you know, very upset that he would say such a thing. But it's true. That was absolutely a proposal. But here's the interesting part about it, and this is how he played them. Because they made such an uproar about it, 
because they literally screamed a liar, um, they're going to have a real hard time going back on that now. The proposal is shot. It's done. I don't, I don't think that uh, the Republican Party is going to go after Social Security now. Um, and I think that Biden accomplished that in that speech. Um, he definitely seemed to play them, which reduces a lot of their leverage. It's going to be really hard for them to play hardball and suggest that they're going to try to cut this something that is a Democratic Party legislative priority, um, if they've already publicly screamed and booed about the idea and saying that it just wasn't true, they would never do that. Yeah. And he knew that he did it. Because afterward, after they finished booing, he was like, you know, it's okay, I love conversions. I love that. So I'm assuming that we could say that's off the table now. He played them. Um, so those are the real highlights of it as far as things that are going to have an impact. I would suggest you watch it because if you want to know what the Democratic Party has accomplished or what they plan to accomplish, you're going to see it there. I would also view a lot of what he is saying is coming up next as kind of a roadmap to his potential run in 2024. Anyway, it's just a thought. Y'all have a good day. Yep. Yep, it's a potential run, but hey, it is what it is. The 80-year-old stammering, stuttering, lazy Joe, or, or sleepy Joe. Fine. Outsmarted, maybe a couple of 40 to 50, maybe even 60 year olds. So, I don't understand. And every, again, everybody doesn't like that he's running. I think he should because two years, 12 million jobs, and Democrats passed a bill that would fund the government for this year. So, the Republicans have technically no power to do anything. That'll be great. And, just to show how uh, uncouth or or low class they are, they still call them liar during the, the speech, but they don't care. They rather have social media clicks than live in the, the real world. They'd rather cut your social security than have the billion and corporations not pay any taxes because they're getting kickbacks. Alright, check this out for Morning Joe. Some Republicans want Medicare and Social Security to sunset. I'm not saying it's the majority. I'm not politely not naming them, but it's being proposed by some of you. Folks, the idea is that we're not going to be we're, we're not going to be moved into being threatened to default on the debt if we don't respond. 
What Biden said clearly outraged the lawmaker you just saw at the end of the clip, Republican Senator Mike Lee of Utah, after the State of the Union, Lee discussed that contentious moment and accused President Biden of lying about his party's position. The president of the United States looked us right in the eye and mischaracterized what half the people in the chamber believe, what half the people in the chamber, according to him, want. It wasn't true. He looked a little bit confused when he pushed back on it. No, actually, well, no. Well, it's Mike Lee who's confused. I know Mike, and I like Mike, but Mike's confused because, first of all, they booed Joe Biden when he said that one president, Donald Trump, raised the national debt more in four years than the United States of America raised the national debt over the first 220 years. True fact, they booed it. You're booing true facts? Why don't you boo it if he says that Philadelphia is going to be in the Super Bowl? It's as much of a fact. What was the next thing? Um, Republicans raised the debt ceiling three times under Donald Trump. They're, they're upset and they're booing that? Why? Because they were there. They did it. The final thing I wrote down, they're so shocked and stunned that Joe Biden said, not all of you, but some of you want to sunset Social Security and Medicare every five years. Uh-huh. By the way, it's not a backbencher. Yeah. It was the guy that ran campaigns. He was the head of the Republican Senate Election Committee. And he wrote Rick it down. Scott. He wrote He's it got down. the plan. The sunset everything. And, uh-huh. and Mike Lee and the rest of them are saying it's a lie when they know. Uh-huh. It's the truth. And Mike Lee himself yeah. called for, quote, Pulling up Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid by the roots. Let me say that again. Mike Lee, well, so shocked and stunned and deeply saddened, called for pulling up social, his words, pull, pulling up Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid by the roots and getting rid of them. Take a look. I'm here right now to tell you one thing that you probably haven't ever heard it from a politician. It will be my objective to phase out Social Security, nice. to pull it up by the roots and get rid of it. Um, okay, somebody please tell me this. Why do old people sitting in the room, they're probably rich, but old people, they are senior citizens. This is February 24th, 2010. Voting against their own interests. You pay into Social Security. It doesn't affect the debt. Absolutely not one penny of Social Security affects the national debt. Because you pay into it. People pay into it. You get back what you pay. That's not discretionary spending. Things that are the deficit is borrowing. The defense budget not not social security I don't think Medicaid or Medicare is under that so I don't understand why people vote against their own interests because they have a D or an R people who advise me politically always tell me that's dangerous and I tell them in that case it's not worth my running that's why I'm doing this to get rid of that Medicare and Medicaid are of the same sort and need to be pulled up. 
Frazier is My down. <laughs> Frazier <laughs> is down <laughs> by himself. Yes. Frazier hit himself hit with himself that left hook. Right. One of those, uh, those <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, But it demonstrates Sell the power up. of audio and video. Yeah, you know about because that. there it is right out of his own mouth. And by the way, Willie, this is the thing. Republicans <laughs> will sit there and act shocked and stunned and deeply sad when people say the truth about what their positions have been. Here we have Mike Lee doing it. He's on tape saying he wants to phase it out. He wants to pull it up by the roots. You've got the Republican senator that ran campaigns for the, the, for the Senate having it down. They're writing it down. They're saying the quiet parts out loud. And then they act shocked last night when Joe Biden calls them on what they've said. Yeah, I think this is a theme, though, right? When you when you stop doing policy and you just do politics, where everything is a zero-sum it's game, a gesture, the other people right? are the enemy, then anything can be justifiable, any talking point, and you don't have any policy to undergird what you're saying. So they know that it's unpopular on a national stage to be cutting Social Security and Medicare. Well, he says to, he wants to destroy it. Right. So they know, out. he knows it's unpopular on the national stage, but when he's sitting, I'm presuming in front of a bunch of donors who are fiscally conservative, who want to do something about the debt, he will say privately what he will never say out loud. And I think that characterizes generally where we are with the Republican Party. They, they talk about abortion, we have to ban abortion. Then they see it's not so popular, that maybe we need a nuanced approach. So now they're all talking about a nuanced approach. You have to hear what people are saying to you, especially when they do it in private rooms. That is what they want. Yeah. Truly. So... Yep. They're still going to try to cut it. No matter what they say. They're still going to try to cut it. Um, again, I don't understand why people vote against their own interest. I blame education because they stopped teaching civics in high school and grammar school. And they're attacking the teachers right now. All right, check this out right now. Florida today, as he continues his post-State of the Union push on that economic message he delivered a couple of nights ago. NBC's chief White House correspondent, Kristen Welker, has more. One day after addressing the nation, President Biden was out on the road in the Midwest testing his message. The backbone of this nation is strong. And I've said so many times, often told the Democrats and Republicans, we can actually work together. But the president doubling down on his accusation that some Republicans want to cut Medicare and Social Security, a claim which prompted a backlash during his State of the Union address. I'm not saying it's a majority of you. With conservative Marjorie Taylor Greene calling him a liar. In Wisconsin, Mr. Biden firing back. Marjorie Taylor Greene and others stood up and said, liar, liar. Reminds me of liar, liar, house on fire. In an interview with PBS overnight, the president asked about those interruptions during his speech. Did you expect that kind of reaction? From the folks who did it, I was. The vast majority of Republicans weren't that way. But, you know, the, uh, there's, a, there's still a significant element of what I call the MAGA Republicans. He also noted that Republican Senator Rick Scott had proposed cutting Medicare and Social Security last year. He says all federal legislation sunsets every five years. If the law is worth keeping, Congress can pass it again. Social Security, Medicare. Most Republicans include... All right. If y'all don't know who Rick Scott is, Rick Scott is the former governor of Florida who ran for Senate and was part of the 
biggest Medicare scandal in U.S. history. They stole billions from the government while he was a CEO. If you Google him, Google him, you know what he looks like? A meth head. Look at me, busy as a bee. Where'd I get all this energy? Oh, man. I don't sleep and I don't eat, but I've got the cleanest house on the street. Oh, man. Get these hairs all out of my face. Get these bugs all out of my place. One more hit, no time to waste. Oh, man. Yes, he looks like a meth head. So if you Google him, you'll see that the guy who stole medic stole from the government, became governor, became senator, is trying to kill the thing he stole from. Alright, back to Morning Joe. Including GOP leaders oppose cuts to those programs. Scott calling the attacks a dishonest move from a very confused president. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy also lashing out. He tries to use that for a political ploy. Meanwhile, the president also speaking out about the classified documents controversy in that overnight interview. The kinds of things they picked up are things that from 1974 and stray papers. There may be something else I don't know. Mr. Biden aiming to shift blame to those who packed up his office from his time as vice president. As they packed up my offices to move them, they didn't do the kind of job that should have been done. NBC's Kristen Welker reporting. So James Carville, you can see in the contrast of the two stories we just did, the congressional hearing with Republicans about Twitter and the president out on the trail, uh, really the shape of a presidential campaign coming into view here, which is that the president's out at union halls talking about jobs and making things in America, and he can contrast that as he did yesterday up there on the stage with Republicans screaming about their tweets being taken down. Well, there was one part in the piece that was particularly illuminating when President Biden read from Rick Scott's own plan. Yeah. And then Rick Scott says he's being dishonest. Well, you know, he's reading right from that plan. And every Democratic strategist knew about this. Kevin McCarthy said in October uh, uh, during the election that they were going to force cuts to Social Security and Medicare. They've been doing this forever. And, of course, they keep... The president's got to go through his head. These people cannot be this stupid, can they? And the answer is yes. I mean, they, they set a trap. And they just walk right into it. Mm-hmm. I, I, it, it, it it's unbelievable. And I think that, again, really, I, you know, you went to Battleville. I couldn't get into that school. But I, these people, I, I, I don't think they could pass gas at, at a state teacher's college. I mean, they're really, they're really <laughs> Did he just say that? Yeah, he did. He's James Carp. Wait. He gets over here. Yeah. Was, yeah, yeah, yeah. I had enough espresso. From that, 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 that was a good one. Exactly. So, so yeah. let's, let's follow up on the, this fact. Again, this is what matters. You know, it's so interesting. Leading up to the election, there was supposed to be the massive red wave. You had uh, right-wing pro-Trump media going, oh, the Democrats aren't focusing on the key issues. Like, and there was a suggestion that it was inflation and that it was, uh, it was crime and it was the southern border. And then a couple of days before the election, I'm calling around. I'm saying, well, what, what are your key issues? And they're like, you're not going to believe it. We have sh- 
stuffed mailboxes full of these great ads on transgender athletes. And they kept bragging about it. Oh, this is a former NFL player and da-da-da-da-da, all this stuff. And I'm just sitting there. And, and of course, the 10-year-old girls in Ohio that have to flee the state after being raped. If they can afford the governor, it. If they can afford, it, they can afford it. it. The governor, the gubernatorial candidates who were saying a 14-year-old girl being raped by her uncle is a perfect example of why we have to force them to have abortions. You look back and suddenly you're like, oh, wait a second. It's actually the Republicans that just can't stick to the issues that matter to Americans. I think it was true in the midterm elections. I think it's true now in these House oversight hearings. Um, and I think it will. It, it has been true in the last two elections. The culture wars have always been the playbook, in my opinion, for this modern-day Republican Party apparatus. Right. Where is the tax plan? Where is the economic plan? <laughs> We're the only plan we have. I've got, got one for said, you. What? Where is... How many years later? My God, is thirteen years later? Where yeah. is their plan healthcare. for healthcare? Oh, we have a better plan than the Ob- yeah. Obamacare plan. Rid of it We've got our plan, but it. it's coming out next month to 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 replace and and, and make better. There's never been never plan. been one. The cold wars have, no have been the playbook, but I think what the Republican Party apparatus has benefited from is that the um, if you look at polling, for example, uh, over not just now, I'm talking about over the course of uh, years. The American people do believe that they are better on taxes, that Republicans are better on the economy, right. even though there has been no substantial uh, pieces of legislation, no plan to substantiate those claims. They just say it, and if you say it enough, people believe that it's real, which is why I think it is very important what the president did in his State of the Union speech and what now what the president, the vice president, and the cabinet are doing going across the country. They are reiterating and reinforcing in places large and small, rural and urban areas, what uh, what the president said we have done he's like this is what we've done and this is what we want to do and mm-hmm. it is very important to meet people where they are in their local communities i do think though that my former colleagues should not be uh so uh, there's a lot of brash and bravado particularly when we look at uh, the oversight committee uh and folks are like oh you know you all know folks are like yeah. we're happy about what we see they don't say it on the record but everyone will say it on on off, off the record or on deep background and the reality is is that what the oversight committee could potentially uh, damage the president. And so, and I do think that there are people in that building that know that. There are real, when it comes to the documents, the American people have not parsed out the difference between what Donald Trump has done, criminal, and what the president did, do, did yeah. happen to just find him in the office, somebody else, and gave him back like, he's, like he's supposed to do. Right. And I, I think the lack of nuance in some of these things for the Absolutely. American people could potentially be damaging. And so they have to do what they've yeah. been doing. The president out there talking about the things, being highbrow, but yeah. lest we lest we have so much bravado that we don't think that you know right. they could do something. So, so James Carville, let, let's talk a, a little bit. It's not brought up, but you know these wedge issues, these the, the, these red hot social issues. Um, let's just talk about how political pundits uh, like me and others have gotten things wrong for 20, 25 years. Because what you hear time and again is, oh, the Democratic Party too far left on social issues. Take abortion, take guns, take all. It scares people in Middle America. It scares. Well, now we have we have proof. We got proof. The the dog caught the 
and it was an ugly sight, right? 50 years fighting to take away the right uh, to choose for women. They got their wish, and it just completely politically blew up in their faces. You look at guns. We all they hear that. guns. You can't talk about guns because you're going to lose voters in this state and that state. Man, the polls overwhelmingly show uh, support for universal background checks and, and other things. I, I just, I, I think we all get it, not all of us, but I think a lot of us get it wrong through the southern border. They talk about the southern border every two years. They lose elections every two years. American voters obviously aren't as scared of these things as Republicans think they are. Well, uh, Jeff, you remember 1994, uh, Senator Biden, President Clinton passed the assault weapons ban. And we won an election in 1996, all right? The country, you couldn't have assault weapons in this country for 10 years. People wanted to went to gun clubs. On this, this trans stuff, uh, the governor of Utah is my hero. They passed a law to Utah legislature about the trans people participating in high school sports. He says, look, there's 60,000 kids in Utah that play high school for, sports. Four of them are trans. Let, let the athletic association figure it out. That's not a problem for the legislature. And they, they just keep bringing uh, th this cultural stuff up. And when you stop to think about it, it already makes no sense. And the one thing they can do that they promised to do, and, and you would be into this, knowing your record in Congress, they promised to produce a budget. Well, let's see it. Let's look at your budget. How do you negotiate with somebody that doesn't give you a number? How do you negotiate with somebody that doesn't show you a budget? They say, oh, we want, we want to cut stuff, but we're not going to tell you what we want to cut. Right. And, and the, the president said, I, I will negotiate the budget, uh, and not not the debt extension. And they have not, and I promise you, they will not produce a budget. They said they would, but what, does that do, what difference does that make? Let's see your budget, and then we see what you got, and you show me yours, and I'll show you mine. I mean, it, that's just yeah. the way of the world. Yeah, you know, and, and I think, again, you talk about budgets. That's something that matters. That's where parties share their priorities. They're not going to do it. And by the way, I'm so glad James brought up the Utah issue on, on trans athletes because it was such a huge deal out there. There was a big explosion of it. And this Republican governor said, come on, come on. We're talking like this is a massive crisis. That's why I always say. You know, Republicans are obsessed on this issue. It's 0.003% of the population. And the Utah governor said, come on, we're talking about four students here. Let's show some compassion. Of course. Let's figure this out. And let's not scapegoat them and act like this is a threat to everybody in the state. Use the mess of a lot four, four students. Again. Republicans have no empathy. They definitely have no empathy for anything. They just want to... <coughs> that's a fine. Pick something. Make it a, make it a dog whistle. Make it something that will come into your home and, and scare you and take something from you. No matter what it is. Minorities. Trans. Whatever it is. They'll, they'll just do that so they can get votes. But... Meanwhile, all they're doing is making themselves get richer on the backs of poor people. Alright, one more about Social Security. Uh, this is from the Majority Report. Check it out. Joe Biden got the Republican Party 
front of the country in a nationwide address to stand up and applaud that cutting Social Security and Medicare off the table. And then it's like the Republican Party uh, essentially mobilized to remind everybody that the American public does not trust them on Social Security and Medicare and that they are vowing to essentially change the position they've had for 90 years and uh, protect Social Security. Here is Frank Luntz, the ethically and follically challenged Frank Luntz on CNBC Squawk Box. Now, I should tell you, Frank Luntz, I don't know if he's still Kevin McCarthy's roommate, but for years, literally his roommate, Frank Luntz was the guy who, after a 14-month-long investigation, was censured by the National Pollsters Association for lying about how much people liked the contract uh, for America. Publicly lying about it. Fudging his poll numbers. There have been report after report after report, former uh, workers saying, he's a scam artist. He's going out there, and he is basically a hired mercenary. If he is out there saying this, it is because Kevin McCarthy is desperate to have this said. And it is, again, like, you want to remind people about your history of Social Security? Be my guest. This is pretty funny. When I was, I think you know uh, Speaker McCarthy. When I was talking to you, I t- everyone I talked to yesterday down in D.C. Frank. Pause it, pause it. I think you know Speaker McCarthy. <laughs> wow. I think you know Speaker McCarthy. That would be a moment for maybe a disclosure of a personal relationship. <laughs> no, you, when I say you, I think you know Speaker McCarthy, it's like, you see him regularly in his underwear, right? I mean, you guys are roommates in Washington, D.C., in your massive uh, condo. The alternative facts, or, or alternate facts, kind of, because if you're in the hinterlands and you're watching and... You watch what President Biden says, and then you watch what uh, Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders says. You, it, it's like they are different. They're, they're living in, in alternative realities, and and I got that a lot yesterday. So I mean, that's just you've been doing this a long time. That uh, politicians are going to spin, but it seems like we're even further apart from from deciding what's actually factual. Well, look, the first responsibility of the president is to tell the truth. So look the American people straight in the eye and tell them the way things actually are. And that's a lie. And I don't like doing this because I don't want to add to the division. I don't want to add to the acrimony. But we have an expectation, and it's a legitimate one, for the president to tell us the truth, and we deserve the truth. Both the Speaker of the House, the the Republican leader of the Senate, were declarative over the last 48 hours in saying Social Security, and I quote, is off the table. He knows that. Pause it. It didn't matter. Pop up that um, uh, paper from the Rick Scott, the guy in charge of getting Republican senators elected in the Republican Senate caucus. Rescue America. The words are all federal legislation, all federal legislation sunsets in five years. If a law is worth keeping, Congress can pass it again. The biggest of all laws is the Social Security Act and the Medicare 
And what did uh, Joe Biden say? Some of you, not all of you, maybe minority, maybe proposed sunsetting Social Security and Medicare. So Frank Luntz is not only a literally certified liar by his own pollster organization. He's not only telling a lie on national television that that's his hair. He is lying about Joe Biden's lying. And he's also, he sort of knows Kevin McCarthy, his roommate, for years. I mean, this is just really, this takes a lot of balls from this guy. Can we get a pull-in on a wellness check for once, too? Yeah, exactly. Well, he's, he's been worse. He's been worse, believe me. I remember, like, you know, like uh, during the Obama years, he was, like, he wasn't getting hired, and he was in the... He was sitting at home just eating bowls and bowls of Putinesca pasta. I think the, uh, that was the story. But continue here. Yeah, I can tell them the way things actually are. And that's a lie. And I don't like doing this because I don't want to add to the division. I don't want to oh, add to the... Oh, pause it. Yeah, there's another lie. <laughs> yeah. The guy lied about... Was found to have lied after a 14-month investigation about the uh, uh, the contract for America for the most divisive, lying human being who's ever served in government, Newt Gingrich, with any semblance of power, I should say. Continue. Acrimony, but we have an expectation, and it's a legitimate one, for the president to tell us the truth, and we deserve the truth. Both the Speaker of the House, the, the Republican leader of the Senate. We're declarative over the last 48 hours in saying Social Security, and I quote, is off the table. He knows that. It didn't matter to him. And this is why I do believe that he's actually going to declare his candidacy, because only a presidential candidate would say something like that, knowing that all the evidence, all the facts are exactly the opposite. So I'm there in the chamber last night. I'm up in the gallery. I'm listening to this. And people around me were shocked. Kevin and I drove there because he's my roommate. We're going to have an argument over debt. We're going to have an argument over the debt ceiling, over those votes, over cutting wasteful Washington spending. But in the end, you have to look into the camera and say what is factually accurate. And the idea that Republicans are going to sunset, not just trim or reform or strengthen, but sunset Social Security is crap. And I would use a stronger word, but I don't want to get kicked off your network. Well, I, I mean, I, mean you're, you're, I, I don't think we need to hear any more of that. I mean, the idea that uh, Frank Luntz, <laughs> look at that image of it up there. Oh, cow. Squawk box more like Sputterbox. Yeah. <laughs> Squawk box. That, that's, as a, somebody who, uh, t- 10 years ago, I was a fact checker in London, the one thing to know about fact checking is it's more of a rhetorical genre than it is like a scientific process. <laughs> yes. Uh, but I, it just the idea that the response to Biden's speech from Kevin McCarthy's roommate, or once roommate, is Joe Biden lied when he said that we are hostile to Social Security, is really, really, I think, I mean, it is, I don't, you know, masterful. If, like, if you were to sit in the room when they're writing the script for the State of the Union, and somebody says, look, you're going to put this in there, 
and tomorrow you're going to have all the Republicans going out and saying, he accused us of being hostile to Social Security and Medicare. We are not hostile to Social Security and Medicare at all. Everybody in that room would go like, dude, are you drunk? Are you high? That's like, how could we possibly get have that happen? That's like the best case scenario. What's like the LBJ thing, make the son of a bitch deny it? Yeah, exactly. This is like, people have fantasies of this. <laughs> like that, that, that the Republicans will be out there just reminding everybody how hostile they've been to Social Security and Medicare for 90 years. And now the limp old man basically forced them to go in front of the American public and pledge not to cut Social Security and Medicare. I mean, it's crazy. It really is crazy. Um, and the son of a bitch denied part, that was about things that weren't true. This is actually true. They just all know to hide it except Rick Scott. Exactly. Exactly. Um, really, really impressive. Oh, and speaking of um, how no Republican would ever be for uh, cutting Social Security, and we played this clip before, but it, but it's worth playing. Uh, we can keep it as part of this uh, Rick, uh, this uh, Frank Luntz denial video. This is just from a couple of weeks ago. Representative Rick Allen, Republican of Georgia. Aside from the guy in charge of re-electing and getting new uh, Republican senators elected, saying that we should sunset Social Security and Medicare. Listen to this dude. Listen to this dude. What we need, we're You know, uh, that's interesting uh, that you ask that question. Uh, people come up to me, they actually want to work on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's on the table you're saying? Well, you know, uh, if people want to work on it, maybe you need to give them an incentive to do it. Yeah, definitely. It's not every one of these problems, by the way. Oh, yeah. And all the way up at the same time. Just that right there. Yeah, gotta use your brain, man. Gotta use your brain. If people want to do something, very important, you incentivize them to do it by making them work longer. <laughs> <laughs> Just gotta use a little bit of your noodle. <laughs> and we've played a few clips recently where Jody Arrington, the House uh, Budget Committee Chair, uh, has has proposed work requirements for Medicare and Social Security. Or, or oh, Matt, I mean, can, and, I mean, like, and Gates especially. Whereas, whereas before you could say, "Oh, it's Matt Gates," but that's the guy who, who coordinated every single concession he got from Kevin McCarthy. Look, the only people who are not aware that Republicans have been historically uh, vehemently opposed to Social Security and Medicare and want to cut these things. Entitlement reform. The only people who are that are so young that they're not even thinking about those things yet. But everybody over the age of 45 years old knows the Republican Party, like the bedrock principle they have, is entitlement reform. Got to be entitlement reform. Got to be. Um, that that I just found just incredibly impressive about the whole thing. Yes, Republicans are going after Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, SNAPs. If you don't know what SNAP is, that's food stamps. That's public assistance. All those programs are majorly used by 
low income, minorities, transgenders, stuff like that. And again, Republicans have no empathy. Most of the Republicans in Congress make over $400,000 a year. So guess what? Why would I cut? Why would I increase taxes on the rich? To get kickbacks from corporations to do that. So again, and we have a lot of old white people in our in office, a lot of them. The Republican Party is mostly white, mostly male. Democrats, it's more diverse. It represents the country. So let's go ahead and show how the Republicans are losing. Spent the day crushing Republican attacks on Social Security and Medicare, and once again today, House Republicans spent the day getting crushed by Democrats in another one of their fake investigative hearings. The President went to Florida today to remind Social Security and Medicare recipients and future recipients that Republican Florida Senator Rick Scott has proposed repeatedly that Social Security and Medicare be repeated. Again, Rick Scott is what? A method. Look at me, busy as a bee. Where'd I get all this energy? Oh, man, man. I don't sleep, I don't eat, but I've got the cleanest house on the street. Oh, man, man. Get these hairs all out of my face. Get these bugs all out of my place. One more hit, no time to waste. Oh, man. as permanent programs and replaced by temporary versions of Social Security and Medicare that would expire after five years. Senator Scott's gentle term for that expiration is sunset. President Biden insisted today that the sun should never set on Social Security and Medicare. Republicans seem shocked when I took out the pamphlets they were using about cutting Medicare and Social Security, read from, you know, Senator Scott's proposal, read from the proposal from the Senator from Wisconsin, they were offended. Liar, liar. I reminded them that Florida's own Rick Scott is the guy who ran the Senate campaign committee for Republicans last year, had a plan to sunset. Maybe he's changed his mind. Maybe he's seen the Lord. But... But I know that a lot of Republicans, their dream is to cut Social Security and Medicare. Well, let me say this. If that's your dream, I'm your nightmare. Yesterday, President Biden reminded voters in Wisconsin that their Republican Senator, Ron Johnson, has also attacked Social Security. And Ron Johnson did President Biden and the Democrats the huge favor of attacking Social Security once again today. So the first time I ran in 2010, I just laid out the reality of Social Security. It's a legal Ponzi scheme. It is. It's truly a legal Ponzi scheme. I point out that reality and of course they get blasted. Today was the first hearing of the special committee created by Speaker Kevin McCarthy to showcase the committee Republican Chairman Jim Jordan's recurring performance art as someone pretending to conduct a serious investigation. The Republican point of today's hearing seems to be that government, especially the FBI, 
exercises too much influence over social media companies, especially Twitter. As authorities on this matter, the Republicans called three witnesses. The Democrats were allowed to call one witness. The big thinker among the Republican witnesses was a favorite of the Fox Channel law professor, Jonathan Turley, who actually said, without any apparent embarrassment, that for him, personally, it has become, quote, harder and harder to discern where the government ends and the social media companies begin. Because Professor Turley is unable to distinguish the difference between a private company and the federal government, he spent much of the hearing spinning the absurdist theory that should get an F on any law school exam that the federal government has been dictating censorship and forcing Twitter to carry out that censorship. That is the word that Professor Turley used repeatedly, censorship, needless to say. Not one shred of evidence of anything resembling what Professor Turley was describing as censorship was presented at the hearing. And Professor Turley got caught by Congressman Dan Goldman in a George Santos-like moment trying to inflate his resume after Congressman Goldman made the point that Jonathan Turley has never worked in government. Jonathan Turley immediately insisted that he was an intern somewhere in the government way back when, and then he claimed that he worked for the House of Representatives when the Republicans in the House of Representatives engaged him as an outside lawyer. That would be like a lawyer saying, I was a member of the mafia because they hired me as a defense counsel in one of their murder trials. The two former FBI agents both agreed that the FBI field offices in cities around the country are the centers of procedural integrity compared to the horrible culture in the Washington office of the FBI. Never mind that the New York City field office has recently witnessed the arrest and indictment of a former high-ranking FBI official in that office who was accused of taking hundreds of thousands of dollars in cash while still on the job from foreign sources and then went on to work for the Russian oligarch who he was supposed to have been investigating while working in the FBI field office in New York City. Neither of those former FBI agents mentioned anything about the integrity of the Boston field office of the FBI, where one former FBI agent was convicted in 2002 for being on the payroll of organized crime and being a co-conspirator in a murder with Boston's notorious Whitey Bulger. The two former FBI agents found it objectionable that criminal investigations of activity that took place in Washington, D.C., are under the, the jurisdiction control of the FBI headquarters in Washington, D.C. Neither of the former FBI agents offered one iota of evidence about anything at all to the committee. But they both suggested, in very general terms, that the FBI just isn't what it used to be when they were working there. Former FBI agent Thomas Baker said, things got really bad at the FBI after... 9-11, when the FBI's mission shifted into a stronger emphasis on intelligence gathering, which is precisely one of the reasons the FBI pays so much attention to internet activity since 9-11. Today was the kind of day that will no doubt recur from time to time, when the nation owes a huge debt of gratitude to the wisdom of the voters of Brooklyn 
and the Lower East Side of Manhattan for delivering Dan Goldman to the Congress and to Democratic leader Hakeem Jeffries for appointing Dan Goldman to this committee. Mr. Baker, I want to turn to you. Uh, when did you retire from the FBI? I retired from FBI employment in uh, over about 20 years ago. And 1999, right? It's a year. Yeah, and I've continued to be so, engaged with the FBI on a number of levels since then. Okay. So you retired two years before 9-11, right? That's correct. All right. And are you aware that one of the reasons that 9-11 occurred uh, was that the FBI and the intelligence community community did not coordinate sufficiently. Do you agree with that? That's a conclusion of the September 11th Commission, and it's very valid, I think. And so you read that like I did, and that's all the information that you had, because you were not at the FBI. And 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 as a result of 9-11, that the Department of Homeland Security was created, right? Uh, A a year or two after that, yes. So you never worked in conjunction with the Department of Homeland Security when you worked for the FBI, right? I was working as a consultant during when most of those years. When you worked for the FBI, when you were paid by the FBI as a, uh, as a special agent, did you work with Homeland Security? No, it didn't exist. Okay. Uh, and you never investigated foreign interference in our elections, did you? No, I personally did not. And you have no experience investigating Russia's efforts to interfere in our elections through cyber attacks and social media, do you? Other than what I've studied and researched. Okay. And in 1999, when you left, did smartphones exist? Of a sort. Really? Yes. What? Well, we had we had phones. We had phones. Smartphones. Do you know had, what a smartphone we had, is? Uh, okay. Well, did I, you ever do any search warrants for emails? Search warrants for emails? No, I did not. Yeah. I've did done you ever it. investigate domestic extremism? Actually, yes. I investigated the Ku Klux Klan on many occasions. Good. I would call did you ever those. investigate any insurrections on the Capitol? No, there was none. Okay. And I appreciate that your, your service, sir, but you would agree that a lot has changed in the FBI in the 23 years since you left, correct? Good and bad, and I have stayed engaged on a number of levels. One last question, sir, for you. I read that your opening statement is an, actually an excerpt from your book. Is that right? Well, it covers some of the same territory, yes. Well, next time, make sure you give us a heads up and we can set up a table for you to have a book signing after this. Um, Mr. Parker, Ms. Parker, real quick, do you think that you speak for, um, you said that er Americans are concerned about the FBI. Do you think you speak for every American? I do not speak for every American, but as a special agent who's been out in the field trying to conduct my job, it's very difficult when we don't have the buy-in of the American people, and a lot of Americans do not trust the FBI anymore because of recent... Well, unfortunately, my time is about up, but I will also say to you that I worked in the Department of Justice for 10 years alongside a lot of FBI special agents, and their biggest concern and the most damage to the morale of the FBI occurred after Donald Trump started attacking the FBI because he was being investigated by the FBI. And that is what this subcommittee is all about. I yield back. Yes, that's what the Republicans are doing. They are actually doing that, trying to get information so they won't be investigated. Um, Most of the insurrectionists are still in in office I think yeah they're still in office and that's just crazy alright moving on my question is why are republicans 
targeting teachers. They're going after teachers because the teachers teach empathy. And here's uh, one in South Carolina. Check it out. I have my doctorate right now because I had a fantastic educator in elementary school. And here we are trying to put red tape around these educators to stifle more young people from achieving what we have all achieved. Because we are trying to censor what teachers can do and how they educate our children. We've got a huge problem here. We need to give more freedom to these teachers. We need to give them lunch breaks. We need to give them the time that they can sit back and relax. We need to stop this. And I'm sure a lot of you all up here have uh, received the testimony of many teachers across this state, many public educators across the state. I mean, they were bombarding me. I know they were bombarding you. So, you know, lots of emails and testimony of teachers talking about the unintended consequences of what is going to happen once this bill is passed. Uh, it prohibits certain concepts in public instruction and professional development. <clears throat> it provides a mean for addressing violations. It provides procedures for public review of public school curriculum. I know we, we want to do what's right for our children, and I am all for that. I've got school-age children. I've got four of them. I've got four of them. And my four children, I am considerably concerned about what is going to happen to them because their best and the brightest teachers that are here they are going to be leaving the classroom, and I, and I for one, I don't want to to let these best and brightest leave the leave the classroom because we need more of them. We've got fifteen hundred vacancies right now, fifteen hundred vacancies right now. We can't afford to lose one. We can't go to fifteen hundred and one right now. We can't do that because we're dealing with a situation right now where these individuals they, they are already overworked, they're underpaid, they're underappreciated right now, and we are not treating them like they are worth their weight in gold. And I just, I just shared a video on my Twitter last night where a teacher was in a classroom up in New Jersey and a young kid was uh, drinking a bottle of water. And he squeezed the bottle of water and, it, and the, the, the bottle top came off and he was choking on the, on, on, the, uh, on the bottle cap. And he was running around the classroom. He couldn't speak. He couldn't breathe. And the teacher literally grabbed him and performed the homic maneuver on this little third grade. It was a black teacher performed the, the homic maneuver on, on, a white, on a little white third grade child. And saved his life in that classroom. That teacher deserves everything that we can. That teacher just saved a child's life. It didn't matter the color. It didn't matter his sex, his creed, wherever he was from. Didn't matter how much money his parent made. It didn't matter anything about that. All that mattered was saving this child's life. And that is what our teachers do every single day across this state, across this country. They save children's lives. They invest in these kids. They love them like they're their own. Let's, let's see when these kids fall down hurting. The, the teachers are the first ones to run in and, and, and make sure that these kids are okay. But yet we want to strap them down and put more red tape around how they're, they're doing things. One of the one elementary library in Low Country said that they had a teacher to object to a Star Wars book because it had violence in it. And they filed a complaint about a Star Wars book that was in the library. We had uh, this same parent uh, objected against a book that had ghosts in it because they said that their child did not need to see the ghost or read about the ghosts that are in the book. You know, we, we have situations like this where it's really a lot of these frivolous claims are going to be left up to the parents and the school districts as to whether they deem them appropriate or inappropriate. Also, uh, we have a, um, um, a library. She was just named Librarian of the Year in the upstate and she was attacked by members of this general assembly members of this general assembly actually attacked her on social media 
They said that she was distributing pornographic material. They put her name and her address online, and she received threatening messages. They went and said some members, some individuals on social media said that, quote unquote, they were going to find her. We have individuals who are public educators right now that are being literally attacked because members of the General Assembly believe that it is okay to put their information out there because they don't agree with the way that they are teaching. We have a serious problem across the state where we are we act like it's okay for us to put put individuals in danger because we don't agree with the way that they are instructing our young people across the state. This is going to cause teachers to say, you know what, I'm just gonna, I'm just not going to get involved with any of this now. I'm just going to back off. I'm going to do whatever these state legislators say because I run the risk of having my information put out there and being attacked, being harassed online. This is a huge problem. And I think that we all need to do some self-reflection because all of us up here are here because of a special educator in our lives. Every last one of you in this room right now can think of your favorite teacher. Every one of you. My second grade teacher, Miss Salazar, was a fantastic educator. Taught me to love education. I have my doctorate right now because I had a fantastic educator in elementary school. We have all achieved educational freedom. Who are we to put red tape and stifle down the, the growth of these young people? Who are we to do that? Shame on all of us for trying to do that. We need to give more freedom to these teachers. Yep. You punk ass parents that scared to let your kids live a little bit. They need to live. How dare you ban a goddamn Star Wars book because of violence. Fucking violence is everywhere. Y'all just going too far. I don't understand why y'all gotta do this shit where it fucks up everybody. Y'all have no empathy. Oh, that's a fine. Um, yeah, that's another fine. They're attacking teachers in Republican states. We gotta let them know that this shit ain't this shit ain't happening. We gotta vote their asses out. It is no way for us to treat teachers. And now they're banning books, banning books in Florida, banning books in Texas. Alright, check this out. This is an inspiring teacher that I think has some wise words. Check it out. If you are to ban one book, we will inevitably ban more. In fact, we will be mandated, if we become a banned book district, to adopt the banned book list from the state of Texas. It is my belief, and I am confident in this, that anyone who seeks to ban this book from our children, from my peers, and from the generations to come, have not actually read it. My name is Preston Sykes. I am, I've been going to Conroe High School for the last four years and set to graduate in just a few months. And actually, in only 11 short years, after six in the military, in the Army, and in five at Sam Houston University, I hope to return to that school right across the street as a world history teacher. I want to do that because education is something that I value more than anything else in the world. It is precisely my value in education that I fear banning books across the district. History has shown for thousands of years that some restriction will always lead to more restriction. If you are to ban one book, we will inevitably ban more. Now we discuss whether or not to ban The Perks of Being a Wallflower, a book which deals with themes of healthy versus unhealthy grief and loss, 
as well as coming to adulthood in the modern world and how to deal with traumatic events and overcome them in a healthy way. These themes are impossible to miss throughout the book if you actually read it. It is my belief, and I am confident in this, that anyone who seeks to ban this book from our children, from my peers, and from the generations to come, have not actually read it. Limiting the youth's access to education will harm not only their education, but also their future, and the future of the generations beyond my own. For the sake of both our students and educators, I plead y'all not to go down that road and begin removing books from our schools and our children. I know that parents have a right to personally request that their student not read a particular book. However, I believe that parents must respect that their rights relate to their own children and that they do not have a right to impose their personal parenting decisions on all students. The purpose of assigned readings like this is to make a connection with the characters and learn empathy for real-life situations. There's no safer way to experience, experience these situations than through the pages of a book. The point of these kinds of stories, often seen as, seen as problematic, is to teach a lesson. You know what other book uses problematic characters and not-so-ideal situations to teach a lesson? This one does. Our district has real challenges to solve, and we've heard about some of them up here from your constituents this evening, and uh, books are not one of them. The book contains themes that help teens to begin to understand the world around them and how they fit in it. The characters are imperfect, as is the world. If we eliminate every book where a character does something we do not like, how many books will be left? Will anyone want to read them? Again, Republicans have no empathy absolutely none none whatsoever I do not understand why they well I have a theory I think that they don't want to speak to their kids about stuff because they don't want to have that uncomfortable conversation about life death growth gay sex all that nonsense stop being lazy you punk ass parents don't be afraid to teach your kids have them have empathy for other people. They might grow up to be good people. Not just good people to people in their in their community. Just their general community. Because some people don't even get outside of their community. They don't even get on planes, get on trains. Don't even leave the state or their town. And if they're just good to people in their town, they see a stranger. Shit happens. Alright, we come to the point of our podcast this is the common sense party podcast i'm your host wayne notley uh rate us review us give us feedback we are available on spotify amazon music samsung podcast pandora and tune in radio give us five stars give us four stars give us three stars give us two stars give us even give us one star if you give us one star or give us no stars i can assume that i'm doing right uh, we are available on Instagram, TikTok. You can donate to the pod via Cash App or all the information is on the website. And you can send us an email at the common sense party pod at gmail.com. All right. Moving on to our next subject. Why would the Florida ban more books? Florida is banning a math book. I do not know why. Check it out. We 
are finally seeing examples of why some math textbooks were rejected by the state. One math problem shows a graph, you see it right behind us, and that measures racial prejudice by age. Fox 35's Matt Treza has a closer look at the books. Here's one of the math textbook sections the Department of Education says crossed the line. What? Me? Racist? This excerpt of an unnamed textbook launches into a math lesson. I, I would think that that's basically almost uh, trying to create a debate. Or how about this question? Asking students questions based on a graph that shows the levels of racial bias among different age groups. I feel like for math, we should be focused more so on the numbers. People in Crane's Roost Park say it's very different than how previous generations learn math. It was the old school. It was just, you know, one plus one, and you went down your columns, and you carried over. I mean, it was very simplified. These are all examples the State Department of Education gave Fox 35 after we'd been requesting them for a week. Last week, the state announced it was rejecting 54 math books from the curriculum because of references to critical race theory and more. The state also showed these examples, two pieces of text mentioning the importance of social and emotional learning, or SEL. That's the practice of teaching children empathy and expressing their emotions freely. The DeSantis administration doesn't want that in the curriculum. Edgewater High School math teacher Ashley Modesto disagrees. It's surprising that, they, that they're against having anything with SEL in the textbooks because it's something that has, ever since the Parkland shooting, we have seen such a push for. We asked for the publisher's information so we could reach out and get their response to the controversy, but the state didn't provide their information. Modesto says she doesn't see a problem with incorporating real-world issues into the classroom. It would be nice if we could say, okay, when these doors close, that there is no aspect of the problem from the outside impacting our students, but, I mean, how realistic really is that? Modesto says she does see merit in moving away from the common core system for teaching math. Publisher McGraw-Hill got back to us saying they're working with the State Department of Education to upgrade their texts to meet Florida's new standards. In Altamont Springs, Matt Treza, Fox 35 News. We are finally... Fuck that dude. Ron DeSantis. Yeah, fuck him. He's trying to make a culture war because he's trying to run for president. That bullshit does not work. Why are you taking away racial education in high school? Why? They are around minorities. It's public school. Minorities go to public school. Even the rich white kids see a black child. They, it makes no sense for them to take away that stuff. Because, again, if you take it away and you don't see it, you're not empathetic to it when you see it. <sighs> I swear to everything beyond me, I do not know why. People vote against their own interests. They put that dude in power knowing that. Well, not knowing. Because as much as you tell them that CRT is a college-level course. College, not high school, not grade school, not middle school. None of those teach CRT. And they still put that dude in power to try to go with this culture war. Try to win an election. But it is what it is. I'm glad I moved out of Florida. I hope 
if anyone in Florida listens to this, please vote Democrat or vote independent. Do not put those people in power where they take away everything from you. Everything. They will take everything from you. All right. All right. Our next subject is why are why should the Democrats um, negotiate with the GOP about the debt debt ceiling? Um, he's having a historic um, economic recovery. Check it out. All right. Remember when it was said that corporations are people? Uh, yeah. No. You know who are people? People are people. Workers are people. People who need jobs to pay rent, to buy food, to get diapers. And tonight, three years after COVID sent our economy into a nosedive, the great news is that people are able to find jobs to do all those things again. Here's today's blockbuster jobs report for January. 517,000 net new jobs were created. I've been in this business for a long time. I cover the economy. That's a lot of jobs. That's nearly triple the number of jobs that economists predicted, and it far outpaces the average monthly job growth throughout all of 2022. On top of that, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, part of the Department of Labor, released data today that showed that job growth for nearly every month in the past year was stronger than originally estimated, meaning hundreds of thousands more jobs were created in 2022 than we originally thought. The unemployment rate fell to 3.4%. That's a near historic low. The last time unemployment was this uh, low, go all the way to the left of your screen, May of 1969. President Biden had this to say following the release of the jobs numbers this morning. Created 12 million, 12 million jobs since I took office. That means we have created more jobs in two years than any presidential term. Here's where we stand. The strongest job growth in history, the lowest unemployment rate in 54 years, manufacturing rebounding at a faster rate than in the last 40 years, inflation coming down. Put simply, I would argue the Biden economic plan is working. In addition to the unemployment rate being at the lowest rate since Richard Nixon was president, some of the communities that were economically battered the most by the COVID-19 pandemic are now among the biggest beneficiaries of this record job creation. A poll conducted by NPR in the Harvard School of Public Health more than a year into the pandemic found that black and Latino households bore the pandemic's greatest economic toll in terms of their ability to pay their mortgage or rent, afford medical care, afford food, and pay off their debt. This we knew even while it was happening. Roughly 18 months after that poll was conducted, the jobs report now suggests that the unemployment rate for black workers has matched its record lows, and the unemployment rate for Hispanic Hispanic workers has matched pre-pandemic levels. Now, for the economy to be powering ahead at this pace, particularly in the face of eight straight interest rate hikes from the Federal Reserve that are meant, they're by design, they're meant to cool inflation down, they're meant to cool the economy down, this is a true feat. And the people benefiting from the current state of the economy the most are the same people who were disproportionately affected by the COVID-19 pandemic. They are the people who bear the brunt of every economic downturn in this country. They are too often people who are left behind in the economic recovery. Now, it's not all pink cloud to pink cloud. Prices are still high. 
as the economist Betsy Stevenson put it, inflation is bad. We all bristle when we see prices higher than we expected. For some people, that means giving up important purchases. But inflation hurts all of us a little. Unemployment wallops a small group of people destroying lives and communities. The goal of President Biden, as well as every lawmaker in both parties, and frankly, every rational person should be, keep this labor market humming. Keep GDP growing. No one in their right mind would want to derail this sort of tenuous success and hurt America's businesses, its workers, and its families. Well, almost no one. Kevin McCarthy and the roughly 20 or so strong Chaos Caucus caucus members who put him in power, along with a bunch of other House Republicans, who are tonight threatening the entire precious state of our economy with their recklessness as it relates to the debt ceiling. For the past two weeks, the Treasury Department's been using what it calls extraordinary measures to ensure that the United States has enough money to pay off its existing financial obligations, which include payments to Treasury bondholders, military salaries, social safety net benefits, retiree payments. Economists warn that the consequences of the United States not paying its bills would not only be economically devastating domestically, but it could plunge the entire globe into a financial crisis, considering trillions of dollars worth of foreign debt is held by foreign investors. That's why Congress has always raised the debt ceiling when it's needed, including 49 times under Republican presidents, 29 times under Democratic presidents. But Kevin McCarthy has vowed he's not raising the debt ceiling unless he gets unspecified spending cuts to its programs, hurting whom he won't say in exchange. Today, in remarks at the Democratic National Convention in Philadelphia, President Biden accused Republicans of attempting to destroy the country's economic growth. Look, you may remember when, during the off-year election, I started talking about MAGA Republicans and democracy. And a lot of you thought, what the hell is he talking about? Why isn't he talking about A, B, C, or D specific issue? Well, guess what? They intend to destroy the... This is not your father's Republican Party. No, really, think about it. These aren't conservatives. These aren't conservatives. These are disruptive people. They intend to destroy the progress we made. Now, Republicans claim to have a plan for forcing the nation into default. Here's what default could look like, according to the Brookings Institute. Social Security beneficiaries seeing delays in their payments could face trouble with expenses, such as rent and utilities. Federal, state, and local agencies might see delays in payments that interrupt their work. Federal contractors and employees would face uncertainty about how long their payments would be delayed. Those and other disruptions would have enormous economic and health consequences over time. Given that those disruptions would likely occur when the economy is growing slowly and perhaps contracting, the risk that the crisis would quickly trigger a deep recession is heightened. Hostage-taking with the ceiling could send us into a recession just as the United States is experiencing record job creation and wage growth. Unemployment sits at near historic lows. The inflation problem is receding. So I ask you again, who in their right mind would want to take the economy that we've got right now and hurt the people living and working in it? Republicans who want to get back in power. Republicans don't care about poor people. I don't know what he says. They don't care about poor people. Absolutely not. Because you're trying to tell me America is getting out of the recession. <clears throat> excuse out of the pandemic. It's on the way up. We have a global supply chain issue. We have companies investing in the technology sector. 
that will not depend us on China. And we're still stuck on people who want to hold on to power because poor people might get ahead. Unfucking believable. I swear to God. Alright. Have you ever had the talk with your parents? I don't think I ever had the talk because when I grew up, we were the majority, so. But they still gave us to be kind to officers and stuff like that. But in America, black parents have to give the talk to their sons, about 13 or 15, because they just don't like black kids or minority kids. Check us out. In recent times, it has been an unrelenting stream of stories. Growing outrage over the deadly police shootings of two black men. Police officer charged with opening fire and killing an unarmed former college football player. Cell phone video seen around the world. Black men, often unarmed, shot dead by police. It has drawn renewed attention to what has long been called the talk. Here's an opportunity for you to engage. Ask questions. Ask the uncomfortable questions. The need for a meaningful national discussion has inspired workshops like this one run by Noble, the national organization of black law enforcement. I'm concerned about the person losing their life because the cop said I was afraid. The goal? To have that conversation by allowing families to talk directly to law enforcement. This can't be the norm. We have some major issues that are not being touched right now. It's a centuries-old conversation, how one must navigate an often complicated color-conscious nation when you are black. Complicated, but sometimes funny, like tonight on ABC's Blackish. Now, my mom would have the talk with me all the time. America hates you. For 19-year-old Winston Harris, this is more than a TV episode. It is his life. He watched horrified as this Facebook Live video of Philando Castile being shot and killed by a Minnesota police officer. Please don't tell me this, Lord. Please, Jesus, don't tell me that he's gone. In Philando's face, Winston sees his own. As each shot rang out, I could feel it. Not like actually, but like I could feel it. Like each time, like bang, bang, bang. Like I could just feel it. Across town, his feelings echoed by another teenager, 16-year-old Ichie Furzner. It hurts because my life just seems like it's nothing. And... The United States. Turning to the modern teenager's diary on Facebook, Ichie penned a grief-stricken post. We can't even go outside without having to be scared for our lives. Both live in middle-class neighborhoods, the American dream palpable. Tempered by this fact, their sons still live in a country where too often they will be judged by the color of their skin and not the content of their character. What do I think of when raising a black child in America? At times, it could be frightening. Like so many other black parents, Pat's made an effort to shield her son. Private, diverse schools. But her best efforts don't make her son immune to reality. Honestly, I'm a little scared. <laughs> you know, it is unsettling. Unsettling for Ichie as well. I am only 15 years old. And I fear that I'm possibly going to die before I even turn 18. What do you think of some of the unique burdens of being a parent to a black child particularly a black boy black boy safety like i always have to worry about his safety i, I believe he's prejudged before people actually get to know him because that's just how it's been programmed in society well i know there's this view that somehow that this is just a kind of paranoia 
But clinician Dr. Kenneth Hardy says it's not some made-up idea. Uh, the pain and suffering of African Americans historically have not really engendered broad, sweeping empathy because uh, I think that that what racism has done is that it has stripped African American people of from from being beings to being things. He says it's actual Trump, particularly stemming from the lives lost captured on video. Philando Castile, 32-year-old in Minnesota, stay with me. killed while in the car with his girlfriend and daughter. There was Alton Sterling, Tamir Rice, but also too many others, faces who may not have made the news. In these cases, many of the officers who killed them went free without a conviction. It's just like, well, I mean, who's next? E.J.'s father, Michael, knows there's but so much he can control you're powerless. You feel like you cannot do anything about it. For E.J. to feel like his life isn't valued, that's your fault, America. That's your fault. It pisses me off. Conversations many black families believe they must have that others don't. Something she recalls discussing with a co-worker. The topic of, do you teach your kids how to talk to cops? The other manager, who was white, said, no, why would I have to talk to my kids about that? And I was like, is that... Why should I have to talk to my sons about that? The double standard in, in the United States sickens me. It, it, it really does. Well, I wish that you knew how it felt to feel like your child is an endangered species, literally. Mike isn't alone. Noble has been inundated with a number of requests for this program. Both the young family and the Harrises heard about the one event happening in Philly a workshop hosted by black police officers. We've done it uh, somewhere in the thousands, I believe, somewhere around 2,000 times, just within the last few years. Can we do a scenario, please? Law enforcement attempting to tackle these questions through interactive demonstrations. They set up a routine traffic stop. Man, be right out your window. You don't have to talk to him. Excuse me, sir, I'm talking to the driver. But for many, the scenario felt sterile, not touching on the issues they came to debate. That was a great little scenario, but I'm not concerned about my kids being stopped. I'm concerned about the person losing their life because a cop said, I was afraid. If someone can drive away without losing their lives, that's a good thing. That can't be the narrative. This can't be the norm. We have some major issues that are not being touched right now. You're talking about issues that I look just like you. I'm a mother. I've been a police officer for 27 years. If you want something to be changed, then be a part of it. You said even people who carry the badge, when they get pulled over, you get nervous. That's not an individual issue. And that's a systemic issue. This is embroiling black communities all over the country. There's still so much left unsaid, but the workshop perhaps a small step towards understanding. I don't want to be one of this and then not do anything. I, I don't like people that do that. So if I'm going to talk about it, I'm going to be about it. You know, I just gained more understanding of, you know, um, being a cop. Just one of the lessons Winston has taken with him in his new chapter as a freshman at Temple University. I remember when I was his age and going off to college, uh, my mom and I would have lots of conversations about staying alive. Going through high school and middle school, I never had that conversation with him. It's not until he entered college and hearing all the reports and knowing the type of environment he was coming into, which he wasn't used to. He's just not like a street person. So the conversation shifted, preparing him to come to college. Worried that a cop might look past his boyish face and see not his promise, but him as a problem. 
I don't think it's what you're wearing on the outside. If they just look wrong, you know, they'll stop them. Why do you have to even stop them to ask them a question like, where are you going? You ever stop by the police? No. I hope I never get stopped either. Still, Winston eager to step out on his own and be a man. You dating yet on campus? No. No? Okay, no. I used to tell him I'm your girlfriend until you're 35. Right? I know. Well, back in North Philly, EJ just wants the opportunity to be a kid. I should be thinking about if I'm going to go to this party. I shouldn't be thinking about if a cop can shoot me in the head. When I was your age, I thought a lot about dying. You know, as a young black man. And was obsessed by that notion. I try to stay positive, but what's going to happen tomorrow? The questions and the burdens of men far older than him. I want to stay alive so that um, I can be here for them. This is not a new conversation in America. But rarely in our rich and sometimes rocky history has it felt more urgent. For Nightline, I'm Byron Pitts in Philadelphia. All right. This story just shows that police don't know what the problem is. Just answer this question for me. How can someone who doesn't have a gun, who doesn't have a knife, scares someone who has a nightstick, handcuffs, taser, and a gun, and mace? Make it make sense for me, please. Once you find, once once someone to answer that question, then we will no longer have this problem. It's a problem with training, and I still uh, I say it again. How can someone who has a gun, a taser, mace, nightstick, handcuffs, and is not alone, scared of an unarmed person? Make it make sense. All right. Moving on. All right. Our next topic is the good old Joe Biden. Let's see what Joe Biden did. Senate Democrats have done it. After more than a year of negotiations and dead ends, Democrats have passed a reconciliation package that includes a bulk of their priorities. The yeas are 50, the nays are 50. The Senate being equally divided, the Vice President votes in the affirmative, and the bill, as amended, is passed. No Republicans voted in favor of the final bill. It passed with a tie-breaking vote from Vice President Kamala Harris. The bill... Okay. Get that through your head. No Republican in the Senate. No Republican in the House voted for the Inflation Reduction Act. But, once it takes effect, guess who will take credit for it? went through some last-minute changes during an overnight voterama. That process allows senators to suggest amendments to the bill before a final tally. Seven Democrats, including Senator Kirsten Sinema of Arizona, voted in favor of a last-minute tax change introduced by Republican Senator John Thune of South Dakota. That led Democrats to scramble to replace that measure with one of their own. The final draft of the Inflation Reduction Act 
would invest more than $300 billion in the climate reform, the largest in American history. The bill allows Medicare to negotiate drug prices for the first time, cutting prescription drug prices for Americans 65 and older. It also adds a new 15% minimum tax on large corporations. The Inflation Reduction Act will now head to the House. Leadership there has announced lawmakers will return from the August recess on Friday to vote on the bill. Senate Republicans were able to keep one key item out of the Inflation Reduction Act. They voted to block a cap on insulin costs for millions of patients across the country. So they kept to their brand, let's just say. Again, Republicans do not like poor people. You cannot come to me and tell me that bullshit about they are for all Americans. They do not like poor people. How the hell you block insulin? A life-saving drug for people who have diabetes. Guess what? The word of the day is profits. Democrats have tried to limit those costs at $35 for private insurers. Only seven Republicans joined all Democrats to try and keep the cap in place. Many of the 43 Republicans who blocked it had a different take on this in the past, including Senator Joni Ernst just two years ago. The skyrocketing costs of prescription drugs has become a matter of life and death for so many We've heard the heartbreaking stories of individuals who could not afford their insulin, were forced to ration and skip doses, and as a result, they lost their lives. Iowans have been very clear with me where they stand on this issue. So she cared until she didn't. So that's uh, another Republican branding thing, just flip against something. The bill does include that cap for people 65 and older on Medicare. And Joe, I just want to start with how big a win this is. The name of this bill, the Inflation Reduction Act, everything seems to be lining up in a way that has really brought this together for Democrats, hopefully, ultimately, in a way that Americans can understand that they have been working on their agenda and they got it done. Yeah, I... I, it's been incredible. I mean, you look at the work that they did. On, on, first of all, i got to say with Joni Ernst and the other Republicans that yeah. voted uh, to allow Big Pharma to keep gouging diabetics, my son, type 1 diabetic. I can, I can afford it. Unfortunately, so many Americans have to make really tough choices on insulin. And, and a lot of Iowans get, get, get screwed by um, Joni Ernst and, and Americans by by. Republicans. It's grotesque. It's absolutely grotesque. Hypocrites and liars uh, for backing down on that. But you look... Okay. Ted Cruz, Richard Barr, Mike Burr, Kevin Kramer, John Boozman, Roy Blunt, Tom Cotton, John Cornyn, Shelly Capito, John Barrasso, and Marsha Blackburn voted against this. I think some of these have already retired because this is kind of old. But again, 
all white and they do not care about poor people. And what they did, Mika, the New York Times uh, talked about how uh, it capped a remarkably successful six-week stretch uh, that included the approval of a $280 billion industrial policy bill that bolstered American competitiveness with China, the largest expansion of veterans' benefits in more than two decades. This bill achieved the Democrats' long-standing goal of slashing prescription drug costs, allowing Medicare for the first time to negotiate the prices of medicine directly and capping how much Americans pay out of pocket for these drugs. $400 billion for climate and energy programs. I mean, it will allow the U.S., think about this, all together to cut greenhouse gas emissions, greenhouse gas emissions by about 40% below 2005 levels at the end of the decade. That's just unbelievable. And you look now at Joe Biden, and I know we're going to talk about this, but you look at these Democrats, a 50-50 split Senate. And you look at Joe Biden, suddenly you have this huge climate change plan, this, this, this huge plan to lower drug costs, to help Medicare recipients. Well, the head of the Republican Senate's talking about taxing, uh, increasing costs for Medicare and Social Security and taxing poor and middle-class Americans. You've got this. You've got an economic rescue plan that's led to the lowest unemployment rate in 50 years. You've got a massive bipartisan infrastructure plan that was passed. You've got the first significant gun safety legislation passed in over a decade. We've got the Electoral Count Act that was reformed to prevent future January 6th. Uh, you, you've got the, the China competitiveness bill, $280 billion to make sure that we can have a stronger semiconductor manufacturing base in America so we're not dependent on China. Confirmation of the first black woman to the U.S. Supreme Court. And then this package, Mika, which is landmark. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 there is no doubt. You, you, you look at what happened in the 10 years before Joe Biden stepped into the White House. The last six years of President Obama's administration and Donald Trump's time in the White House. Uh, Joe Biden has done yeah. more uh, than them, not combined, two, three, four, five, six, seven times. This has been an extraordinarily successful uh, two years legislatively. Any way you cut it, even Republicans have to admit this privately, and they are. Yeah, man. Republicans don't like poor people. No matter what y'all tell me, they don't like poor people. Absolutely not. They absolutely do not like poor people. They want money versus empathy. All right, moving on to Mr. George Santos. No surprise, he's under federal investigation. We can tell you that CBS News has confirmed that federal prosecutors are examining the finances of Congressman-elect George Santos. And the Nassau County District Attorney's Office is looking into the Long Island Republicans' admitted fabrications about his past. Tonight, you'll hear from the three other Republicans who just won Long Island congressional races. How are they responding to the Santos scandal? Also, a political expert breaks down what could happen 
if Santos is forced to resign. And we will look at the mounting pressure on House GOP leadership to launch an ethics investigation. CBS 2's Lisa Rosner reports tonight. From defending his reputation on Fox News. I'm not a fraud. I'm not a fake. I, I, I didn't materialize from thin air. Congressman-elect George Santos may soon have to explain himself in a court of law. CBS News sources say prosecutors with the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Eastern District of New York are looking into his finances, including financial disclosure filings in the wake of Santos' own public admissions to lying about his resume, background, and other information. The Nassau County District Attorney and Don a fellow Republican is also looking into the matter and said Wednesday the numerous fabrications and inconsistencies associated with Congressman Alex Santos are nothing short of stunning. The residents of Nassau County and other parts of the 3rd District must have an honest and accountable representative in Congress. No one is above the law and if a crime was committed in this county, we will prosecute it. But congressional experts say if Santos does not resign, very little stands in the way of him being sworn in as scheduled January 3rd. Once someone is sworn in as a member, really the only standard um, that the Constitution has set is that two-thirds of the House must agree in the case of an expulsion. Now the organization Unrig Our Economy is launching a six-figure ad campaign that reads George Santos lied and tell leader McCarthy investigate Santos. Republican House Minority Leader Congressman Kevin McCarthy has not responded to requests for comment, but fellow Long Island Republican congressmen are speaking out. Incoming Representative Nick LaLota said, I believe a full investigation by the House Ethics Committee and, if necessary, law enforcement is required. Newly elected Congressman Anthony D'Esposito stopped short of calling on him to resign, saying in part, his fabrications regarding the Holocaust and his family's history are particularly hurtful. He must continue to pursue a path of honesty. Congressman Andrew Garbarino said as a member of the Ethics Subcommittee on Investigations, he is unable to comment. If Santos steps down, the congressional seat would remain empty, and experts say the governor would have to call a special election, which could include a primary race in the spring. The New York State Attorney General Letitia James has said she's looking into Santos' fabrications. Reps for the House Ethics Subcommittee told us no comment. Lisa Rosner, CBS 2 News. Okay, that is old. They open up a house ethics uh, investigation. It's not going to go anywhere because the Republicans are in control of the House. And if it takes two-thirds of them to vote him out, there's only a four-seat majority. So that's not going to happen. So the only way... He's stuck there for two years unless he's found guilty of an SEC violation or a voter fraud. That's about it. So he's there to stay. The Republicans are not going to do anything to to help. That's not their mantra. He's there to stay. All right, let's hear from Bo about these hearings. Well, howdy there, Internet people. It's Bo again. So today we are going to talk about... Uh, Republicans in the U.S. House of Representatives and their show and how things are going. And we're, we're going to talk about believing your own stuff and how they certainly should have known that this is how it was going to go. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, I'm not surprised because nobody watched it. But 
they held their first hearing. Um, this one was part of the series that is apparently going to be trying to pin something on Hunter Biden. I don't actually know what they're really trying to look into here. Um, but the first hearing was supposed to showcase how Twitter was like at the command of the Democratic Party and how they you know, censored everything to help him and all of this stuff. And that's what they told people they were going to see. What was the testimony? I am, I am aware of no unlawful collusion with or direction from any government agency or political campaign on how Twitter should have handled the Hunter Biden laptop situation. That's Twitter's former deputy counsel. Testimony very, very similar to that came from a whole bunch of people. This was very surprising to a lot of Republicans, particularly those who have been asking me since the, quote, Twitter files came out why I wasn't covering it, and this especially goes out to the person who was down there for like two weeks saying day 20-whatever of Bo covering up the Twitter files. This is why I didn't cover it, because I read it. So they believed that they were going to get all of this information about how Twitter censored the Hunter Biden laptop story. That's what Republicans believed. Why? Because a whole bunch of right-wing commentators said that was true. And the Republicans in Congress believed them. It is worth remembering that the person who put the Twitter files out said, there is no evidence that I've seen of any government involvement in the laptop story. Why, uh, couldn't they find it? Why didn't anybody at Twitter admit it? Because there's never been any actual evidence to suggest that occurred. They made it up. They got caught in their own propaganda feed, and they believed it. So, how is a hearing supposed to run if you were around during the the sixth hearings, you remember me saying a certain phrase over and over again. Tell them what you're going to tell them. Tell them, tell them what you told them, right? What has happened on day one of the Republican hearings? Tell them what you're going to tell them. Oh, no, that's not what anybody said. This is going to be repeated over and over again. Because a lot of the people involved in these hearings, they consume what they believe is journalism and it's really just right-wing commentary. And they accept it as fact, and they have literally scheduled congressional hearings about it. You can expect multiple instances of uh, these hearings just wildly backfiring. Um, so in addition to them not demonstrating what they set out to demonstrate, we also found out that uh, Twitter basically kind of has like a whole database of requests from Republicans to censor posts. The framing was that it was Twitter colluding with the Democratic Party to censor stuff that was objectionable to those in power. No, I mean, pretty much everybody in power made these kinds of requests. One that I found particularly interesting was from the Trump White House because 
Trump's feelings apparently got hurt when somebody said mean and hurtful things about him and called him a, uh, I don't even know how to soften this, a P-A-B, we will just abbreviate, uh, and that means weak. And, and he really didn't like that. Now, if that revelation had been made during the January 6th hearings, it would have trended all over social media, that phrase. But it didn't. Why? Because nobody's watching it, because nobody cares, because nobody believes them. The only people who are interested in this are people who already fell for the, uh, for the idea that it exists. That's it. Nobody else cares, because anybody who looked into it saw it for what it was, selectively released documents to paint a narrative. And the biggest claim that arose wasn't even supported by the documents. Um, so you can expect a whole lot more of this. It is also worth noting that it was discovered that despite claims of Twitter being like super on the side of the Democratic Party, they altered the rules to allow Trump to stay on longer because as soon as he said, go back to where you came from, well, that should have been it. Their whole thesis was blown out of the water on day one because they have no idea what they're doing and because they consumed a bunch of right-wing propaganda and mistook it for journalism. Uh, expect to see a whole lot more of this because it's going to happen again. The good news is that nobody's watching it. Uh, there aren't a lot of people watching it, I mean, other than you know weird people like me for humor's sake. The, uh, the other thing to remember is why these hearings are taking place. What are they really doing with this? The suggestion is that this laptop story would have altered the outcome of the 2020 election. Even as Mike Pence gets his subpoena to testify before a grand jury, they're still, they are still trying to relitigate this and cast the idea that Trump really should have won. That's why nobody cares. And this is something that is going to haunt the Republican Party as long as it goes on. Um, I'm going to go ahead and pro tip for the Republican Party. Almost every hearing that you have announced is going to go down exactly like this one. It's going to go that badly. You might want to rethink. Anyway, it's just a thought. Yes, they're wasting time. That's all they're doing is wasting time and wasting taxpayers' dollars. And here's an example of them wasting time. Thank you, uh, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Mr. Roth, uh, please explain to us why Ms. Uh, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, or the representative from Georgia, was removed from Twitter. Thank you for the question, Congressman. My recollection is that her personal account was banned from Twitter after repeated written notices due to repeated violations of the Twitter rules. Can you add a little specificity to the violation of the Twitter rules? Yes. Again, I didn't have access to my Twitter email, documents, anything that would have let me prepare to answer that in more detail, but my recollection is that the Congresswoman repeatedly violated Twitter's policies about sharing misinformation about COVID-19. She received multiple written warnings about that conduct. 
She received multiple timeouts related to that conduct. And then ultimately, consistent with the written and published policy, those repeated violations resulted in her account being permanently suspended. Um, so Mr. It, Chairman, so in essence, I'd like the, to make a point the, of personal privilege. Uh, the, it's still my time. We'll stop. We'll stop. It's still my clock. It's still my time. Order of order, Mr. Raskin. Yeah, right. Um, I don't believe that members of this committee have the right to interrupt someone's testimony because their point name of is personal before. privilege. And you were mentioning my name, Mr. Raskin. Yeah, no, I understand, but that's not the rule, Ms. Green. I don't think that, a member. That is the rule in, in Congress. Well, then I'd like, a, take a I'd like the Parliament to a rule on whether any member of this committee has the right to interrupt a witness's testimony because they mentioned the name of a member of Congress. You mentioned my name, Mr. Raskin. Yeah, I'm not testifying. Chair, I can ask Ms. Green. Thank you, Mr. For your Chairman. point of privilege, thank, very thank, briefly. Thank you. Um, uh, for Mr. Roth, who, who made you in charge of what is true uh, and what is not true? Does she get to reopen her no, question? No, that, that we'll, we'll, we'll go back to Mr. Mr. Gomez. And, and Mr. Gomez, please remember the, the decorum of the committee. Uh, the clock will restart the clock now. We, you didn't lose any time. Chair recognizes Mr. Gomez. Thank you so much. Um, the gentlelady from Georgia was suspended from Twitter for for knowingly and consistently spreading conspiracy theories about COVID nineteen vaccine, right? Which is shameful, shameful, especially in a pandemic where millions a uh, million people have lost their lives. Okay, so there's so much going on here that's so fun. Uh, first of all, this clip has a real my cousin Vinny vibe Yo, to it, God, right? Yeah. Uh, but it's like in reverse because she's the one who is getting up and like she has no idea really how the courtroom is supposed to work. So like she gets up to deliver like the part where Joe Pesci, they're like, okay, you're trying to deliver your opening. And he walks up and he goes, everything that guy just said is bullshit. Everything that guy just said is bullshit. <laughs> the judge is like, the, the members of the, of the court will, uh, will disregard everything. Uh, with, with the exception of thank you, <laughs> you know, sorry. So the chairman is like, like Raskin is the ranking member. Is like, hey, she, she can't God talk. bless Raskin, by the way. The guy yeah. is like, honestly, like he's like holding it together. It's like he's clearly not well, and oh, he's still okay. fighting the good fight. Jamie Raskin is a wonderful dude who. For those who don't know and you know are listening and couldn't see the clip, I mean, Jamie Raskin is, is undergoing cancer treatment. I remember talking to Jamie Raskin a few years ago, uh, and all he wanted to talk about was the robust intern program that uh, he had created. I mean, you know, we were hanging out in his office. Like, that was what he, like, he's really excited because he's a professor by trade. But anyway, uh, you know, Raskin says, hey, look, she doesn't get to talk. And the chair knows that she doesn't get to talk. And he knows that the parliamentary rules say that she doesn't get to talk. But he also knows that she's Marjorie Taylor Greene, and she's got like a, a, a billion truth social followers or whatever. And he's like, I don't need that headache. So he's like, you go ahead and do your point of privilege. Do it briefly. And then she just goes, hey, have I reminded anybody in the last 20 minutes that I am totally crazy <laughs> the best part of it Jason, is the body language of her republican oh. colleagues around her just you can see oh, the yeah. wife getting sucked out of them and i'm like you deserve every bit of this he lets her go for a second and then he goes all right you other guy do your thing and then has to say to him remember the decorum like he didn't do anything wrong and he knows that that guy's not really saying he did anything wrong so anyway that was delicious <laughs> yep they're batshit crazy Absolutely batshit crazy. All right. We're going to talk about the meth guy one more time. Check it out.
Rick Scott and his proposal to sunset all federal legislation after five years, including Medicare and Social Security, unless Congress decided to reauthorize it. Scott defended. And again, Rick Scott looks like a... Look at me, busy as a bee. Where'd I get all this energy? Oh, man, mm, man. I don't sleep and I don't need... But I've got the cleanest house on the street. Oh, man. Mm, man. Get these hairs all out of my face. Get these bugs all out of my place. One more hit, no time to waste. Oh, man. Oh, man. The proposal he made yesterday, comparing it to a 2017 Republican health care plan that would have cut insurance from 24 million Americans, according to the CBO. He brought up a 2017 interview where my colleague Jake Tapper pressed a Trump official on the cuts. Hey, Kayla, let me just read you something Jake Tapper said. This is back when uh, Republicans were proposing reducing the cost of Medicaid. But what about what Jake Tapper said? I mean, what Jake Tapper said and Jake Tapper said, that is a cut. You know, have you talked to Jake Tapper? What did, why did he say it was a cut if Republicans do it? Did the same fact checkers go back and look at what Jake Tapper said? This dude scammed the government, the U.S. government, out of billions of dollars in Medicare. Billions while he was in Florida. Then he became governor of Florida. Became governor. And now he's a senator. And again, he looks like a... Look at me, busy as a bee. Where'd I get all this energy? Oh, man. Mm, man. I don't sleep. I don't need. But I've got the cleanest house on the street. Oh, man. Mm, man. Get these hairs all out of my face. Get these bugs all out of my place. One more hit. No time to waste. Oh, man. Oh, man. Why did you get that That $880 billion cut Medicaid is a cut. What they did last fall is going to reduce life-saving drugs. I, I understand you're saying it has an impact. Drugs. I understand you're saying it has an impact on drugs. That is different, though, than saying that they cut Medicare when they're saving money on the cost of what those drugs cost to Americans. Okay, but then what? Then why did Jake Tapper say that eight hundred eighty billion dollar cut Medicaid is a cut? I'm sorry, Senator. I don't think that's the defense that you think it is. Here is what Jake actually said. According to the Congressional Budget Office, the health care bill that just passed the House would cut $880 billion over 10 years from Medicaid. Now, I know that the Trump administration is excited that Medicaid will go back to the states where they have more control and can experiment and be more efficient. But without question, $880 billion fewer dollars is a cut. Joining us now to discuss is CNN's Jake Tapper. Jake, uh, what did you make of that, watching that interview, hearing your name be invoked so many times by Senator Scott? Well, first of all, a rough morning for anybody that was playing the Jake Tapper drinking game. Um, <laughs> for eight times in five minutes, ten minutes, that's, 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 I, first, it was incomprehensible to me, honest. Um, there, I mean, there's so many issues here. One is, Senator Rick Scott proposed sunsetting all federal programs every five years, and if they're worthwhile, then Congress can renew them. That's his proposal. I mean, just in the last day, uh, the Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell was saying, that's the Rick Scott plan, it's not the Republican plan. Uh, and House Speaker McCarthy has been saying the same thing, that's not our plan. 
but Rick Scott did propose it, and he was the head of the National Republican Senatorial Committee when he when he proposed it. So, I mean, that's just a fact. Uh, for whatever reason, Senator Scott didn't want to stand by that plan, and there is a, a way to discuss it. That you know, just, you can say Medicare and Social Security, there are real issues with their solvency, and this is a way, a way to have that conversation, yeah. et cetera. And by all means, they should have that conversation. But the just the the whatever that was that that word salad where he kept on mentioning me was just very strange to me because he was trying to compare. Medicare now being able to negotiate drug prices with drug companies, which is not a cut from Medicare. It's a cut in pharmaceutical company profits, no question, but it's not a cut in Medicare. With me asking a question about the Congressional Budget Office analysis of a Medicaid bill from 2017, I mean, Jake, it's really just kind of nonsensical. Jake, you know what that is. So he didn't say Jake Tapper says when he did his interview on Fox. He didn't say Jake Tapper says when he did his interviews other places. It was someone gave him that talking point probably saying, well, you know, they said it on CNN. If Jake Tapper says it, then whatever. And so I think he was using that as a talking point and kind of a gotcha to CNN during Caitlin's interview. And she's right. It's not sure. the offense that you think it is. So I think that's what it was. But I think it obviously fell flat. Yeah, no, look, when he went on Fox... Uh, not this week, but recently, to try to defend this Rescue America plan, he accused Fox of reading Democratic talking points. John Roberts. I think it was John Roberts. Yeah, it was John Roberts in and the all, summer. Yeah, yeah. And all John. Uh, yeah, and all and all John was doing was literally reading the, the Rick Scott plan. So, look, I'm not here to, and the, the, the same as as all of you, I'm not here to take a position on his plan. This is his plan. I'm not pro Rick Scott plan. I'm not anti Rick Scott plan. I'm just. Here is what he is proposing, uh, and obviously he doesn't want to defend it. He wants to change the subject, which is an odd thing to do, but that's also his prerogative. We do need more Jake Tapper in the morning on this program. I'm not sure that's the way we wanted to get it, but we're glad it got you here. Can we just? I want your take on what Mitch McConnell has said in the last 24 hours. Here it is. Well, this doesn't have anything to do with that. I mean, it's just a bad idea. Uh, I think it will be a challenge for him to deal with this in his own re-election in Florida, a state with more elderly people than any other state in America. That is really right. interesting to hear McConnell say. Obviously, there was no love lost between the two, but to hear him say this is going to make his own re-election in his state harder, what do you think? Well, I mean, I think, first of all, Rick Scott has been challenging Mitch McConnell for the leadership position in the Senate. He has failed. Uh, he has not successfully challenged him, but he's been, been tried to do it. And second of all, I think that this is exactly why, um, but you know, the way that President Biden is using this issue is exactly why so many Republicans did not embrace the Rick Scott plan because they thought it was electorally, politically, a real vulnerability. And and look, what, what President Biden said at the State of the Union that there are some Republicans proposing sunsetting Medicare and Social Security, it's accurate. Rick Scott proposed it. Now, the, all the Republicans that booed him and called him a liar, that's not accurate. Because Rick Scott did propose it. Um, but the truth is what McConnell said, that Rick Scott proposed it, but most Republicans have distanced themselves from it quite quite a bit. Yeah, McConnell's like, okay, 
I'm in charge and Kevin McCarthy are in charge. We're the leaders of the party in our respective chambers. We chambers, we are against this. So I do think it's important to note that. We've heard Republicans say that. I will say, you know, to be fair to Rick Scott, his uh, senior advisor to him in responding to McConnell said, Rick Scott knows how to win Florida a hell of a lot better than Mitch McConnell does. Some D.C. Republicans can keep parroting Democratic lies. That won't stop Rick Scott from fighting for conservative principles instead of caving to Biden. Basically, Rick Scott is still standing by this plan. Jake, when I asked him yesterday if it was a mistake, uh, he said no. He didn't think it was a mistake to propose it. So we'll see how that plays out. But uh, more importantly, Jake, you have a very important... Again, Republicans don't like poor people. And Rick Scott looks like a... Look at me, busy as a bee. Where'd I get all this energy? Oh, man, man, I don't sleep and I don't eat, but I've got the cleanest house on the street. Oh, man, man, get these hairs all out of my face, get these bugs all out of my place, one more hit, no time to waste, oh, man, man. All right, ladies and gentlemen. This is Black History Month, and to celebrate, we are letting you know of 15 untold Black History Inventors wasn't taught at school. Check it out. untold black history inventors wasn't taught at school most people have heard about famous inventions like the light bulb the cotton gin and the penicillin but did you know that many of the products we use every day were created by black people here's a list of 15 of them that until now you probably didn't know about frederick mckinley jones if your refrigerator has any produce from your local grocery store Then you can credit African-American inventor Frederick McKinley Jones. Jones took out more than 60 patents throughout his life, including a patent for the roof-mounted cooling system that's used to refrigerate goods on trucks during extended transportation in the mid-1930s. He received a patent for his invention in 1940 and co-founded the U.S. Thermal Control Company, later known as Thermo King. The company was critical during World War II, helping to preserve blood, food, and supplies during the war. Dr. Shirley Jackson. Dr. Shirley Jackson is an American physicist who received her PhD from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology in 1973. She was the first African-American woman to earn a doctorate in nuclear physics at MIT. In addition to her lengthy list of academic achievements, she also has an impressive number of inventions under her belt. Her experiments with theoretical physics paved the way for numerous developments in the telecommunication space including the touch-tone telephone, the portable fax, caller ID, call waiting, and the fiber optic cable. Today, Dr. Shirley Jackson is the 18th president of Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute in Troy, New York. Louis Latimer. Inventor and engineer Louis Latimer was born in Chelsea, Massachusetts, on September 4, 1848. He collaborated with science greats Hiram Maxim and Thomas Edison. One of Latimer's greatest inventions was the carbon filament, a vital component of the light bulb. 
his inventions didn't stop there. Working with Alexander Graham Bell, Latimer helped draft the patent for Bell's design of the telephone. This genius also designed an improved railroad car bathroom in an early air conditioning unit. So the next time you're escaping a hot day inside your cool house, don't forget to thank Louis Latimer. Marie Van Britten Brown Did you know that the first home security system was invented by a black nurse? Meet Marie Van Britten Brown. Although she was a full-time nurse, she recognized the security threats to her home and devised a system that would alert her of strangers at her door and contact relevant authorities as quickly as possible. Her original invention consisted of peepholes, a camera, monitors, and a two-way microphone. The finishing touch was an alarm button that, when pressed, would immediately contact the police. Her patent laid the groundwork for the modern closed-circuit television system that is widely used for surveillance, home security systems, push-button alarm triggers, crime prevention, and traffic monitoring. Otis Boykin Otis Boykin's most notable contribution to science was likely the circuit improvements he made to pacemakers after losing his mother to heart failure, a contribution that has saved countless lives since. But this single improvement was among a long list of achievements. Boykin had 26 patents in his name and is famed for the development of IBM computers, burglar-proof cash register, chemical air filters, and an electronic resistor used in controlled missiles and other devices. Lonnie G. Johnson Did you ever enjoy water gun fights as a kid? Well, meet Lonnie Johnson, the man that gave us the most famous water gun, the Super Soaker. Lonnie wasn't a toy maker. He was actually an aerospace engineer for NASA with a resume boasting a stint with the U.S. Air Force, work on the Galileo-Jupiter probe and Mars Observer project, and more than 40 patents. Yes, he is also working on the Johnson Thermoelectric Energy Converter, JTEC, which converts heat directly into electricity, but it's the squirt gun he created that has given us all the most joy. Charles Drew. Every two seconds someone in the U.S. needs blood. Thanks to Charles Drew, that blood is available. Drew was a physician, surgeon, and medical researcher who worked with a team at Red Cross on groundbreaking discoveries around blood transfusions. In World War II, he played a major role in developing the first large-scale blood banks and blood plasma programs. He also invented the, and get ready because this name is pretty charming, Bloodmobiles. These are the refrigerated trucks that, to this day, safely transport stored blood to the location where it is needed most. Drew was one of the most prominent doctors working in his field, and one of the only African Americans, during a time when blood donation was still separated along lines of race. Drew eventually resigned from his position with the American Red Cross over their insistence on adhering to this policy. It was 1950 before the Red Cross finally recognized all blood as being equal. Marion R. Croak In 2013, Marion Croak was inducted into Women in Technology International's Hall of Fame, a move that recognizes her remarkable achievements in tech. Croak holds over 135 patents, primarily in voiceover internet protocol, VoIP, some in other areas. She has another 100 patents currently under review. Today, Marion is an SVP at AT&T, serves as a mentor for women in AT&T Labs, and sits on the board for the Holocaust, Genocide and Human Rights Education Center. 
Lisa Gerlachter. If you ever enjoyed an animated GIF on the web, like this one amazing clip of a kitten being scared by an iguana, then you have Lisa Gerlachter to thank. Gerlachter was integrally involved with the advent of Shockwave, a technology that formed the beginning of web animation. She also played a major role in the emergency of online video, later serving on the senior management team at Hulu. Previously, Lisa was the interim head of digital for Bet Networks and ran technology, product and business operations. Today, you can catch Lisa at the White House in the United States Digital Service. She is currently serving as the Chief Digital Service Officer with the U.S. Department of Education. Philip M. Aguali. Due to cost, Philip M. Aguali was forced to drop out of school at age 14. But this didn't stop him from becoming one of the greatest computer pioneers of our time. In fact, he's often called the Bill Gates of Africa. As an adult, Imagwali began studying nature, specifically bees. The construction of the honeycomb inspired him to rethink computer processing. In 1989, he put this idea to work, using 65,000 processes to invent the world's first supercomputer, able to perform 3.1 billion calculations per second. Jesse Ernest Wilkins Jr. Jesse Ernest Wilkins Jr. is one of America's most important contemporary mathematicians. At 13, he became the University of Chicago's youngest student. Wilkins continued his studies there, earning bachelor, master, and eventually earning his doctorate degree in mathematics at the age of 19. He's published papers in mathematics, optics, and nuclear engineering. As a mathematician for the American Optical Company in Buffalo, New York, he perfected lens design for microscopes and ophthalmologic uses. His greatest contribution to scholarship was the development of mathematical models to explain gamma radiation and his work on developing a shielding against gamma radiation. His other claim to fame came from working on the Manhattan Project. At the Manhattan Project, Wilkins worked with future Nobel laureate Eugene Wigner and made significant contributions to nuclear reactor physics, now known as the Wilkins Effect and the Wigner-Wilkins Spectrum. Elijah McCoy Often regarded as one of the most famous black inventors ever, McCoy was credited for 50 inventions over the span of his career. In an effort to improve efficiency and eliminate the frequent stopping necessary for lubrication of trains, McCoy devised a method of automating the task. In 1872, he developed a lubricating cup that could automatically drip oil when and where needed, vital in avoiding sticking to the track. The lubricating cup met with enormous success and orders for it came in from railroad companies all over the country. It was so popular that when other inventors attempted to steal his idea and sell their own versions of the device, companies were not fooled. They insisted on the authentic device, calling it the real McCoy. Garrett Morgan Those who survived either of the world wars thanks to a gas mask have Garrett Morgan to thank. Morgan first created the safety hood to help firefighters navigate smoky buildings, later modifying it to carry its own air supply, making it the world's first effective gas masks. He also had the good sense to add a third position to the traffic signal. Yes, there was a time when traffic signals just said indicated, stop, or go, an addition that further reduced automobile accidents. Mary and Mildred Davidson Mary and her sister Mildred patented many practical inventions. They didn't have technical education, 
but they were both exceptional at spotting ways to make people's lives better. Together, they invented the sanitary belt. Later, Mary invented the moisture-resistant pocket for the belt. While disabled from multiple sclerosis, Mary went on to invent the walker and the toilet tissue holder. Yep. Every month is Black History Month because we make history every month. Alright, ladies and gentlemen. We have come to the end of episode... Excuse me, that's uh, fine. Episode 17 of the Common Sense Party Podcast. I'm your host, Wayne Utley. Uh, rate us, review us, give us feedback. Give us five stars, give us four stars, give us three stars, give us two stars. If you don't give us any stars, I can assume that I'm doing it correctly. You can get us wherever you get your podcasts, such as Spotify, Amazon Music, Samsung Podcast, Pandora, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, yes, and we're still working for working to get on Apple. Uh, you can send us an email at the Common Sense Party Pod at Gmail. We're available on Instagram and TikTok. You can support via Cash App or Zell, the information is on our website. So, this is the Common Sense Party Pod. Check us out next week. as a bee. Where'd I get all this energy? Oh, man. Mm, man. I don't sleep and I don't eat, but I've got the cleanest house on the street. Oh, man.